You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. But so far, God has been kind to us as we've made our way and tried to figure out what is, what is Acts all about. So we'll be in Acts 1, verse 12. We'll take it all the way to the end of chapter, all the way to all the way to verse 26. And so here, and let me read God's word for us this morning. Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Judas, who arrested Jesus, excuse me. For he was numbered among us, and it was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants in Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, a keldema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the Psalms, Peter continues, may this camp become desolate, and let those be none be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism until John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take his place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot there. You might remember we began the book of Acts, Acts 1, trying to show an overview of what's kind of going on in the entire book. Uh, three, we identified three major themes in the first half of Acts 1. Here are the themes again. The kingdom of God. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God, Acts 1, verse 3. And that theme continues to get developed 
throughout the remainder of Acts. Actually, I argued that the kingdom of God is the, the frame around the entire book of Acts. The second theme is the, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're really going to dive into that next week when we get into Acts 2. And the third theme, the mission of God. God is on mission to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. And we as a church are on that mission with God. These three themes are highlighted in verses 1 to 11. Uh, The second half of Acts 1 highlights a fourth theme that is also developed throughout the entire book. It is about the birth of the New Testament church. Uh, We're in Iowa, so I thought about birth and growth in kind of agricultural terms. Uh, Farmers know what it means to see new birth and growth. Consider when when like a seed is planted in a field, right? So where where we live at our house, many of you have been there, there's like soybean fields and corn fields. And in the spring, the seed goes down. I don't even know when the seed goes down, but there's a time where it goes down. But there comes a moment where it begins to grow, it's cultivated, whether it's through the efforts of the farmer or, or nature, the seed is nurtured so that it will grow. Over the summer and into the fall, we'll, we'll see tangible evidence of the, of the growth, right? You know the saying with the corn, knee-high by 4th of July. You see the growth. But where did it start? A little seed in the ground that you couldn't even identify with your eyes unless you were actually the one putting the seed in. You would have no idea it was there. Oftentimes, these like new beginnings, as the example with farming, are celebrated, right? I'm sure farmers are really um, relieved and they celebrate when the seed gets in the field. There's other moments where we can celebrate new beginnings that may be more applicable to you, like the birth of a child, right? It's a new beginning. The moment a father or mother sees their child ride a bike without training wheels for the first time. I remember when I saw that with my oldest daughter, Chloe. She's like, she's riding her bike without wheels. That's a new beginning. I don't know what's going to take her. <laughs> um, the moment someone makes a profession of faith, it's a new beginning. It's new birth, spiritually speaking. Uh, i never forget the moment Sharice and I committed our lives in marriage to one another. That was a new beginning, right? The two shall become one flesh. I think you all could sit here and reflect on times in your own life where new beginnings happened. Some new beginnings last, some new beginnings end, but when new beginnings happen, oftentimes they are celebrated, like the birth of a child. It's memorable. You're never going to forget that. The second half of Acts 1 is memorable. For being honest, though, the second half of Acts can kind of fly under the radar in our you know, daily devotions and Bible reading, in part because what did we just get done talking about? Go, therefore, make disciples, and we have going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all to the ends of the earth, and we have the ascension of Jesus Christ. What are we going to get to next year? We got like Pentecost, tongues of fire coming down. And so we can kind of easily skip by this because of what comes on both ends of this passage. You rarely hear it preached at church unless the church preaches through books of the Bible. But it is memorable. I would imagine if you or I were part of the 120 recorded in Acts 115, this is the time after the ascension of Christ and before Pentecost, it would have been a day you would never forget. Why? In Acts, 
1, verses 12, 26, we read of a new beginning that would eventually change the world. Like, how many new beginnings take place that change the world? Even think of the sermon series title, right? The sermon series we're going through in the book of Acts. The world turned upside down. That's Acts 17.6. And it's pointing back to where we're at today. The world turned upside down because of this new beginning. So here's how I want us to move through this passage. How I want to help you move through this passage this morning. Um, first, I wanna, I'm going to kind of reset the scene that we read about, that we've read about in Acts 12, or verses 12 to 26. And then I'm going to show you the marks of this new church. What are some marks? What are some characteristics that we see here? And along the way, I want to challenge you to apply the marks or characteristics of New Testament church to your, to your life, right? So we, again, head to heart to let's apply these things. What we read in this passage isn't just for your reading pleasure. It is for you to apply every single day. Every single day. Okay. Because Acts is, like I said last week, is written in a narrative, and we've had a week off. Let me, let me do this reset real quick. Two weeks ago, we saw how Jesus left the apostles when they, left, when they were in Bethany, and they went to Mount Olivet. Acts 1.9 says, He, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. It's, the ascension of Jesus. So all of a sudden, two men in white robes appear to assure the apostles that Jesus is going to come back. Remember what I was talking about? They're like gazing into heaven, and these two men in white robes are like, hey, refocus here. Refocus. He's coming back. But there's work to be done. Between the ascension of Jesus and when Jesus comes back, the apostles are on mission they're on mission to preach God's word. So needless to say, though, the resurrection, ongoing teaching of Jesus after the resurrection, and then the ascension brought great encouragement to everyone who witnessed all these miraculous events, right? So the ascension of Jesus brought about this new beginning. And as, as with any new beginning, some organization and direction is required, right? Right? after the birth of your first child, like all the stuff just didn't show up in the room that would accommodate the birth of your firstborn, right? There's a little bit of work that needs to be done here. So in verse 12, we read how the group which just witnessed the ascension of Jesus went back to Jerusalem to reflect on what happened and consider what needs to be done. What's kind of the organization we need to bring about for this mission? Here's what they were working through, right? Okay, Jesus was alive, but he is no longer physically with us. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, who now we are waiting for. And Judas, who walked with Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, was taught by Jesus, is now dead and needs to be replaced. The writer of Acts, Luke, presents a gruesome account of the man who used to do ministry with Jesus and the apostles. You all know him by the name Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then had taken his life. The immediate matter addressed in this passage is the replacement of Judas. 
Well, what we see in today's passage is that through a human plan in God's sovereign hand, a replacement was chosen. So what else do we see in this passage? More of the reset of the scene. Eventually, a man named Matthias was chosen. We don't know everything about Matthias. Frankly, we don't know anything about Matthias. It's like shooting darts at a dartboard in the dark trying to figure out who Matthias is. He's only mentioned one time in the Bible, and it's right here. Never to appear again. However, the process of selecting Matthias was necessary for the apostles, which is why Luke records it. Today's passage, like I've said, it isn't flyover country, but it's rich and instructive. With the new beginning of the church as the context, along with the selection of Matthias as the twelfth apostle, the next apostle after Judas, there are actually several diamonds that we can mine this morning and then apply to our lives. And that's one of the things we work through as we read a narrative like Acts or Genesis, right? We ask the question, what's God saying here as this story unfolds and it's developed? How do we apply? So there's three particular things, three particular marks that I want us to apply this morning from God's word. Number one, we see the authority of Scripture in this passage. I'll talk about that. Second thing we see is the sovereignty of God. And then third, the importance of prayer. And praying with purpose, too. So let's, let's mind these. I'm going to show you from God's word how these three characteristics marked the New Testament church and continue to mark and should mark this church. In verse 15, we read that Peter steps up to the plate to lead approximately 120 people in an upper room. Verse 13, a group of 120 people suggest the room was fairly large, maybe perhaps size, this size right here. Uh, 120 people was also acquired by Jewish law in order for a new community to be formed. I think that's a little bit what was going on here. 60 people couldn't do it, but by Jewish law, if you had 120 people gathering, that could be a new community. Regardless, Peter has to help everyone process the betrayal of Judas and lead out with, what do we do next? What are the next steps here? And it's fascinating. If you do a study on Peter, it's amazing to see his growth and development as a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? He was the guy who betrayed Jesus in the Gospels. And now he's the guy who's leading out in the birth of this church. Notice how Peter did not respond. He doesn't, under, he doesn't um, respond by trying to understand the, circum, the, the current circumstances by like human logic. And he isn't passive to deal with the circumstances that are right in front of him. Instead, Peter filters the death of Judas and the subsequent fulfilling of Judas's spot as an apostle by going to the Bible. Verses 16 and 17 are a, remar- a remarkable statement that should inform our reading of the Old Testament. And here it is. It was necessary that the scriptures be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas. Like, do we read our Old Testament like that? 
Like this was foretold by David. And he became a guide for those who were arrested, for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Let's, let's dis- dissect these verses for a moment. Peter is saying that the fulfillment of Scripture means Jesus needed to be betrayed by Judas. There was no alternative action for Judas. Even the great King David foretold about Judas's betrayal when he said, let his dwelling become desolate. I think you'd think his death. Let no one live in it. And if you're good at reading your Bible, you're immediately going to, I'm going to go to that psalm, right? What's he quoting? Let's get some context here. Peter appropriates this verse to apply it to Judas. The point Peter is trying to make is that the betrayal and death of Jesus have always been a part of God's plan. So, If it is true, we do have to be careful on this point. Peter is not suggesting that God's sovereignty over the actions of Judas lets Judas off the hook for his sin. That's not what Peter's suggesting here. The uh, eminent reformer from the 16th century, John Calvin, said, Judas may not be excused on the ground that what befell him was prophesied, since he fell away, not through the compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. For my money, there's no better commentator on the Bible than John Calvin. I think he is doing a good job of walking the tightrope of God's sovereignty and yet human responsibility. To suggest that God, um, to suggest that because God foreordained the betrayal of Judas by Judas does not acquit Judas of his crime, he is still responsible. Peter's point is simple God's plan of redemption has always been at work. Has always been at work. And Judas played a part in God's redemptive plan. And I'll just pause here for a moment and admit, you gotta wrestle with the sovereignty of God here. I do, and that's okay. I hope you do as well. But God had a plan, has a plan, it will not be thwarted, he's completely sovereign. Period. Because Judas is no longer counted among the twelve, it says he needed to be replaced. So Peter quotes again, goes back to the Psalms, going back to his Bible. He's opening up his, up his Bible and say, "How do? What do we do here?" He goes to Psalm one hundred nine, verse eight. Let someone else take his position. And so Matthias was eventually chosen. Again, Peter is thinking biblically about the circumstances surrounding this young church. What do we do here? Well, let's read our Bible. I believe the application for verses 16 to 20 is straightforward. Here's the question for you to answer. It's how we can begin to apply this. What is the lens over your eyes in which you understand the circumstances in your life? Right? 
We're all going, we all go through trials. We all have, we're all bumping up against decisions to make. But what's the lens that's right in front of you in which you try to understand what is going on? When an unexpected situation arises and, and Judas's betrayal and death was unexpected, not to God, but to the rest of the apostles. What do you do? Do your emotions rule your perspective? Do you rationalize your way through the tragedy? Do you recoil and say, I, I just want to deal with this? Or do you go to God's word to make sense of the unexpected? Listen, I, I know that all the why questions that you may have do not always get answers when trials come up, when circumstances come up. But the Bible, God has given us the Bible to be our governor, to guide us. God has given us his word to comfort us, to, to recalibrate our emotions, and to help us navigate life. To use anything else as your lens is to potentially not walk in God's will. If we pull back for a moment, and if we're really honest with ourselves... We look for a lot of different ways to be guided in our lives. We really do. I do. I'm more prone to pick up the phone and ask a friend about your good advice that I hope is kind of matching how I think and feel than I am to go to God's word. I can let my emotions get the best of me to try to make decisions. This does hit at the question for me and for you, what place does God's word have in your life? And in particular, as it applies to the text, when you're bumping up against decisions that you need to make, questions that you have in life. What do I do next? How do I understand tragedy and suffering, etc.? Not only does Peter use the scriptures to navigate the unexpected, you know, Judas and everything he did. He goes to the Bible to help him to understand next steps. Judas was gone, 12 had turned into 11, and Peter's biblical lens helped him to process what is next. And this is, again, another lesson for us. We all encounter minor and major decisions, right? Planning this church was a major decision. Joining this church plant was a major decision. How, to, how parents educate their kids is a major decision. Taking a job is a major decision. Additional education is a decision. Where do you want to go for lunch afterwards is a minor decision, but it's one you got to make. And here's the question. What is informing you? What's your lens? Now, the Bible doesn't always give us direct answers to every question or every decision that we face, but the Bible does give you a framework. Gives you a framework for how to make decisions. In this description of the birth of the New Testament church in Acts 1, we see the importance of the Bible for the church and God's people. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is always good to remember. All scripture is God-breathed or, or is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I just want to see something that I did there. 
we got, we got this narrative, this description of God's word, and now we can go to an epistle and see it's prescribed. All scripture is breathed out. A mark of the New Testament church is that its submission and devotion is to the authority of God's word. I'll add this as kind of a a footnote to that statement. Not only do we want to say that and believe that, but we want to live that. You can go to a lot of church websites that will have that. But do they really cling to that truth and want to live out that truth? God's word is authoritative in my life, and I want to submit to it. And I'm submitting to you. Of these three marks, this is the first one we're talking about. That is a mark of a New Testament church. Here's another mark of the New Testament church. I've mentioned it already, and these kind of all intertwine. It's the sovereignty of God. We already saw how the sovereignty of God was at work with the betrayal of Judas, but now look at how God's sovereignty was at work with Judas's replacement, Matthias. Let's just kind of walk through how Matthias was chosen. First, a qualification was made about who was going to take Judas' spot. Whoever is going to replace Judas needed to be a witness to what? The life of Jesus. He got baptized and did ministry, and there was the resurrection. Basically, it would be like an employer trying to fill a position saying um, job experience and a college degree are required if you want to apply. Do not bother applying if you cannot fill the prerequisites. That was the first thing. Second step, out of the 120, two were chosen. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice. He's got three names. <laughs> and then we got this guy with one name, Matthias. And so they kind of weeded out everyone from 120 to two. Third, they prayed. And then fourth, they cast lots. After the fourth step, Matthias was chosen. I'll touch on prayer, step three, in a moment. But for now, look at the other steps. After being informed by the Bible, steps one and two involve wisdom. With wisdom, they said that the person to take up the office of the apostle be a person who is going to continue to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You witnessed it before, you've seen Jesus, and now you continue to witness to his resurrection. So like I said, this qualification weeds out a lot of people. So what about the sovereignty of God here? Well, let's read verses 24 and 25. And they prayed and said, listen to the prayer. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Their prayer acknowledges that God is completely involved in the choosing. So what happens next? They cast lots. Now, before we all pull out the poker deck and play in the name of the sovereignty of God, let's understand what's going on here. Here is what it would have looked like to cast lots in the first century. Uh, two names were like written on stone or wood, and they were put into like a bucket or... Piece of cloth or whatever, where you can kind of shake it around and you just pull a name out, and it seems pretty simple, right? 
Whose name do we got on it? All right, you win. Matthias. That's kind of a little bit of what casting lots was what it looked like in the first century. So, before making this a church practice for making decisions, you need to understand the heart behind casting lots in the first century. The apostles firmly believed God was actually choosing. God not only knew the heart of each man, but God mandated that Matthias' name be pulled out of the bucket or the sack, whatever. Proverbs 16.33 could have been on their mind. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The casting of lots was an acknowledgement by the apostles that above their wisdom, right? They were trying to use wisdom. Let's, let's whittle down the 120 to 2. Above their wisdom, God is ultimately in control. God puts governments in place and removes them from power, Daniel 2.21. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50, verse 10. God is sovereign over the salvation of every soul. Just go ahead and read Ephesians 1. God does not let a sparrow fall to the ground apart from his will, Matthew 10.29. And Matthias was chosen by God's decree. Yeah, I, I already said, we don't know a thing about Matthias. Never shows up again. But trying to figure that out misses the point. God is sovereign. Here is the principle at work in the selection of Matthias. A man's plan yields to God's sovereign hand. A man's plan yields to God's sovereign hand. This principle is made explicit again in Proverbs. The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know, when my wife and I decided to move from Minnesota down to Iowa, we made plans, right? We wanted to be wise and prudent. Many of you have done that as well. We wise and prudent. Where am I going to live, right? How are we going to get all of our stuff down there? And that's good. But make, make no mistake about it. God was completely sovereign over our plans. The sovereignty of God can land on people in several different ways. Um, and I acknowledge that. Like I've said already, it's a difficult doctrine to wrestle with, a good doctrine to wrestle with. When a person is told God is entirely sovereign in control of their life, they can like buck against that truth, right? They can buck, against, they can buck like a Mustang that does not want to be ridden. A horse that doesn't want to be broke, right? If God's sovereignty lands on you like this, then you need to acknowledge this. You can buck all you want, but if God... If he so chooses, he can tame you. He can tame you. So just listen to me here. Let me get real for a moment. Let me really apply this, because our American Christianity does not lend itself to holding on to the sovereignty of God. We are taught, just as Americans, right, to be independent, radically independent, and in control of our own lives. Right, just 
Watch TV commercials and see how much it's about you and your independence and your control over everything else, right? So because we've been programmed to be independent and in control, we have a hard time embracing God's utter control over the universe and over every human life. Conversely, if you read this passage and you hear what I'm saying and you are a child of the Heavenly Father, then I then the hope isn't that you fight for your independence, which is a result of pride, but that you celebrate the care, the protection, and the love of your Father because he is completely sovereign over your life. For the New Testament church and for us, the sovereignty of God brings, hopefully, an immense amount of comfort for you. So in sum, yes, make a plan amid circumstances, but when you make a plan, find comfort in God's steady and sovereign hand over your life. No matter if your plan goes poorly, it goes sideways or unexpected, right? God is still sovereign. He is still with you. And in those moments where it really goes sideways, what is he doing? Our sovereign God is teaching us, growing us, fathering us as children. It's incredible to see that at the very beginning of the New Testament church, we see actions which confess the sovereignty of God, right? Casting lots. It's not what we think today when we play poker or whatever, right? It's no, God's completely in control. This isn't a game of chance. It's a game of sovereignty, The third and final mark of the new and budding New Testament church is prayer. Twice we read about the importance of prayer in the New Testament church in our passage. Here it is. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And then 10 verses later, verse 24, 25, and they prayed, said, we already read this, and read it one more time, you, Lord, Know the hearts of all. He knows the hearts of all. We often think of prayer as a spiritual discipline, which is true. But we, do not, we sometimes do not grasp the depths of prayer. E.M. Bounds tells us the depths of prayer in the church. I love this quote. The life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of his members is dependent on prayer, and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. The very place is made sacred by its ministry. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Prayer is more than a mere activity. It is calling out to, a ho- to the holy God of the universe. There's a ton we can learn and apply from how the early church prayed. And by the way, we're going to bump into a lot of prayers as we go through the book of Acts. There's a couple of things we can learn from this text. First, we need to be persistent in prayer. The early church was persistent in prayer. In verse 14, it says they were devoted to prayer, which carries this idea of being constant in prayer. Uh, This description uh, of prayer connects with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Meaning, be constant in prayer. Prayer is not something that should just happen on Sunday or when you go to your community group. 
are constantly praying. Even when your prayer seems dry, we continue to press in and be persistent in prayer. In the late 1990s, a show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire began to air. Um, I used to watch it with my mom. That's why it's memorable for me. And one of the features of the show <clears throat> is that if you were asked a question and you didn't know the answer, you could like phone a friend. That was literally what it's called. You want to phone a friend? And the hope is, you know, the person picked a really smart friend. To be constant in prayer is to know you can always phone God. I'm not trying to be cheesy. I'm just trying to make a point here. You can always phone God. God the Father is always on the other line for his children. You can never pray too much. And you never have to worry about if God is listening. The loving and heavenly Father always takes the call from his child. Always takes the child. Always takes the call. Which means, and it should encourage us to be persistent in our prayer, no matter our circumstances, no matter how we feel, no matter what lies are attacking us from the world, no matter what Satan is trying to do to, to discourage you in your faith. You can be persistent in prayer, knowing that God is listening. In addition to being persistent, we need to be united in prayer. Um, the early church was united in prayer, verse 14. Uh, the English Standard Version says they were praying with one accord, which also means the church was continually united in prayer. I have a couple of thoughts about what it looks like to be united in prayer. First, and this is stating the obvious, the text is highlighting the cor corporate aspect of prayer. All the apostles, verse 11, and the women, verse 12. And then what's mentioned along with that is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers, verse 12. They were all praying. Prayer isn't for a few holy people who can say the right words. And I'm talking corporately here. All of the Father's children can call upon him in prayer. This is more of a pastoral moment for me. Do not be consumed with trying to say the right words, right? There can be an intimidation when someone hears someone pray and be like, oh, I can't pray like that. That sounds too good. I don't even understand half of those words. Hear me here. God is concerned with how you pray first in your heart. In, the mid, in my mid-twenties, I went to London, England. And on the trip, I visited a Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, it, was the, it is the church that exists in the legacy of the great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And uh, we, we visited a bunch of things, and this is like the one thing I wanted to hit, you know. I visited a Sunday service, and I, I remember the prayer um, from the pastor. Actually, I don't recall <laughs> what he said, <laughs> but I remember what I thought to myself after he got done praying. 
thought to myself, I can never pray like that. I wasn't making a judgment about the man or his prayer. That was not the point. But I saw in myself that I'm a very different person. God has created me uniquely. I have different experiences, different language. Well, I guess they're English, but different culture, right? And so I can, I, I've concluded, this is how I need to pray. This is my encouragement to you. I need the Bible, we need the Bible to shape our heart and our words. Again, this goes back to Scripture. The Bible becomes the governor for how we can pray. I need the Bible to shape my heart. And as the Bible shapes my heart, it informs my words. Again, it doesn't matter the language, the tone, or the eloquence of the prayer. You don't need to pray really loud, right? Or monotone or soft. Don't get caught up in that at all. At all. God wants your heart wholly devoted to him. And then your heart will reflect your devotion to God. If we're going to be united in prayer, then we embrace the differences and diversity that comes from different people praying. So here, here's a, the, the point of application. Pastors are people who need to model, need to model for others as we follow Christ. But don't try to pray like me. Go to God's word instead. Let that shape your heart and inform your words. So what's some more application here? Well, there are, there are numerous application points, but let's look at the content of what is prayed in verse 24. Luke records that God knows the heart of the two men put forward to replace Jesus. So part of Peter's prayer, he's confessing, God, you know their heart. Now, so pause for a moment and think about what that means for you. Whatever is going on inside, whatever your motives, desires, or intentions, guess what? Guess what? God knows. The fact God knows what is going on in your heart can cause conviction, right? Or and comfort. Here's what I mean. When when there is a temptation to sin, your acknowledgement that God sees your heart can guide you away from sin. Right? You got that temptation, and you're like, you just kind of remember. Remember this passage. God sees the heart of all men. He sees my heart. Now I can go to you know, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, God's word says, flee. The acknowledgement of God's omniscience, that means he's all-knowing, can bring sweet conviction to us that leads us out of sin and into the arms of our Father. But knowing that God sees your heart should also be a great comfort. When Peter prays, Lord, you know the hearts of all, he was including himself. God sees your heart and he loves you. God sees your heart and still accepts you. God sees your heart and he always wants you to call on him in prayer. I don't know about you, but my heart can be wicked. Right? It can be downright wicked. Yet I take great comfort that through this life and sanctification, God is still for me. He's wanting me to grow. Yes, he will disciple me. 
and he will discipline me, but he's always for me. He's for you if you are his child. That should be great comfort. So from this passage, we see the marks of a church that was beginning to grow, right? Kind of go back to my opening statements. These marks are, are an acceptance and a, and a love for the authority of the Bible, right? When they're figuring out what to do, they're quoting Psalms. Peter's going back to Psalm. Uh, also, we see with like the casting of lots, it was an admission that God is sovereign over this. Yes, we got a plan. We put it in a process. We're trying to use wisdom, but ultimately, guess who's in control? God. And then third, the importance of prayer. We want to be persistent in our prayer. We want to be united in our prayer. So where does this leave us as we continue to journey through Acts? The late John Stott says this, and this is a recap for today and a highlight for next week. Though the place left vacant by Judas has now been filled by Matthias, the place left vacant by Jesus has not been filled by the Spirit. Next week, as we turn the page, right, to Acts 2, we will see how God fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit to his people. Let's pray.